but for this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Lord, we do continue to worship you and now this holy word, Lord, your scripture. We remind ourselves of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, causing the soul to be revived. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Lord, use this powerful word, this written text, Lord, that you have breathed out by your Spirit. Use it, Lord, to correct us and to cleanse us and to challenge us, Lord. Give me grace to preach it correctly and clearly. For Christ's sake, amen. Have you ever climbed a a cliff? If you haven't climbed a cliff, I would encourage you to climb a cliff. You can go to different places and Puyallup, I'm sure elsewhere, or Tacoma, and you can climb a wall and... I would encourage you to to do that, and it can be very scary. I remember now, I think it is, over three decades ago, near Simi Valley, if you're familiar with the Los Angeles area, there were some cliffs, and there was one that was 100 feet high, and my friends and I were climbing it. And I was at about at the 60-foot mark, and this is many years ago. And the, the footholds were about just a, a couple inches like this. And I was on this little tiny ledge, and the next handhold and foothold was up, and it was over here. And... I'm a little guy that didn't have a lot of strength, and so I'm almost flat against the the cliff trying to place my weight forward. And so I had to reach over here and just, again, maybe that far as the, the, the ledge, and grabbed on with this hand and had to pull myself over there. And so as, as I'm pulling like that, I can feel myself starting to slip. And you're just holding on as tight as you can. And then you you, you make the, the, the step almost a lunge. And so there's a, a brief time when it's just not even five fingers. It's more like three fingers. You're holding on. <laughs> and I fell. Now, in life... Spiritually, it can also be like that. In life, I think there there are times when we are seeking the Lord. There are different trials, circumstances that come into our life. We try to make a, a reach, a, a grasp for something to, to go through it or to overcome it. And, and we're almost there. But at times, and maybe even we're latching on, but at times it's almost like you're hanging on by... Just three fingers, just by your fingertips onto Christ, onto Jesus and Christianity and the Bible and truth, maybe even your sanity. Just... And then at times it can feel almost as if you slip and you fall. And I'm sure that that all of us, in one way or another, to some degree, have been in the place where morally, uh, spiritually, in our relationship with the Lord, we have maybe not fallen all the way, but we have fallen back from our commitment 
to the Lord, to Jesus. This passage in front of us is saying that when that happens, there is a divine representative that is super sympathetic for you and to you so that even if and when you slip and you fall, it's not that you have to keep on falling. It's not that if you drift away from Christ that you get to a place where you can't necessarily come back, but rather you have a divine, sympathetic representative who has not fallen, who never let go, who was always faithful to the Father and His Word. And He actually is representing you before God the Father. So this passage then is saying, since you have this divine, sympathetic representative, cling to and cry out to Him so that you don't fall away, but press forward. This passage will take two Sundays to preach. And in the context of the book of Hebrews, it is saying, since you have a sympathetic representative who never disobeyed, who never fell away to any degree ever, but always trusted God the Father and God's Word, therefore, cling and cry out to Him, so also you don't fall away, but can go forward. Verses 14 and 15 talk about grasping on. Verse 16 will talk about going to the throne of grace. Verses 14 and 15 talk about persevering in the Lord. And then verse 16 talks about prayer. Verses 14 and 15 will talk about clinging on to Christ. Verse 16 will talk about communion with Christ and prayer. So this morning, we're going to talk about the first imperative that's here, and that is cling on, grasp, persevere, and never ever let go of Christ. Since you have this divine, sympathetic, great representative between you and God, no matter what, cling to Him. And if you feel like you're slipping, cling even harder to Jesus. That's what this passage is saying. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to these believers. There were Hebrews that were former Jews and had become believers. They were being tempted in many different ways to abandon Christ. And not for all of them, but for some of them, their fingers were starting to slip. And the Spirit of God is saying, you can look at verse 14 at the end, where it says, hold fast. Grasp Christ and persevere. Hang on to Him, even if you lose everything, right? Some of them had been placed in prison. Some of them had all of their possessions taken from them. What should their response be? That happened to them because of their faith in Christ. Remember, they, they came to Christ and the, the physical part of their life did not become easier. It became worse. And so then the Spirit of God is telling them and us, no matter what, if friends hate you, if family betray you, you hang on to Jesus. You cling on to Jesus even tighter. So first, we want to ask what? What is this idea of hold fast our confession? Hold fast our confession. What does this mean? Well, several things. First, there's solidarity here. There's this unity that is here. If you look at verse 14, notice it says, let us. It's not even this plural you, you all. The writer is saying, uh, us together, I'm identifying with you, all of us need to hold on. So even as I preach, it's not simply or only exclusively, you had better hold on, it's all of us 
must hold on to Jesus. There's nobody here that is so mature and spiritual and has their their life and their faith so together that they don't have to resolve to hold on even tighter to Christ. All of us. Even if the Apostle Paul was here, I would have to tell him, Paul, you hold on tighter to Jesus. All of us together. It is this resolve. It's the way they express a first person plural, the, the, the we, we should do this. There's a little bit of a, of an invitation here, not just this bold command of you, but we together let us resolve to take this course of action. Additionally, this word, this word, hold fast, again, look at it in verse 14. It's from the Greek word, it's part of this word kratos, kratos. Some of you might remember when we went through the book of Ephesians. Throughout the book of Ephesians, you have all these power words, like dunamis, you have several others. One of the power words is kratos, kratos. And we have English words... It's K-R-A-T-O-S in Greek. We have English words that are related to this this word. Theocracy. Democracy. Krautos. Democracy. It's the idea of overcoming power. The, the people have power or to rule over. Our God is having the power to rule over. Here, this word, this word hold fast is the idea I'm going to exercise my power and my strength to, to overcome whatever obstacle there is. And I'm going to hold on to it. And in a sense, you know, subjugate it. Not that I would subjugate Christ and his word, but I'm going to grab onto this and, and never, ever let it go. You can't take it from my hands. That's the idea of holding fast. It's this steadfast commitment. Perhaps you can think of this idea of tenaciously or with ferocious resolve doing something, holding on to something. He has this tenacious commitment and ferocious resolve. I'm not going to back down. Not in an arrogant and a prideful and a boastful way, but this is so dear and so important, and he's so worthy, I'm never going to let go of Christ. Further, also when it says, let us hold fast, it's not a one-time and done deal. It's this, uh, this present tense idea that every day, 24-7, my life is going to be characterized by I'm in such a desperate condition that I have no other choice but to what? Hang on with all the strength that I have. Because if I let go for a moment, I could be done. I'm going to hold on. All the time, every day, no matter what, habitually and continually, I'm going to hang on to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm never going to let go. Keep looking at verse 14, and it says, let us hold fast our what? Our confession. Now, look at the word our. That's actually a Greek article, like our, the. It's it's possible that you could translate it, let us hold fast the confession. But the Greek article at times can be translated as a pronoun. And so that's what they did here. The reason why is because it, it sounds a little bit better, um, let us hold fast our confession, the, the confession of faith that we've placed in Jesus. But it would also be, though it may not be acceptable to our ears, maybe, let us hold fast the confession. It wouldn't be the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession. It would be like Romans 10, 9 through 12. If we confess to Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. 
it would be where Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man may come unto the Father except through me. There is no other name in heaven by which somebody can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. It would be the confession in context of Hebrews would be that chapter 1, that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is God of very God. He is the Son of God, the creator of the world. And then chapter 2, that he became fully human and made propitiation on the cross for the sins of his people and that he rose again and ascended into heaven and sits down at the right hand of their majesty on high. That's the confession. It's this confession It's not just our confession, it's our confession and the statement of biblical truth about who Jesus is. That he is fully God, that he became a human, though without sin, and died on the cross making atonement for all those who trust him. This is the confession that we make. And the idea here is, no matter what happens, our faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior, as our mediator, as our redeemer, we never ever let go of that. And it's with all the, all the fortitude and strength of heart that we have. Maybe you haven't climbed a cliff face. Have you ever been pulled by a boat on an inner tube? Have you ever been pulled by a boat on an inner tube? I can say I've, I have to, I've been pulled by some pretty crazy boat drivers from different parts of the U.S. And I feel almost every time I do that, they're trying to waterboard me. I feel like they're trying to actually waterboard me. There have been so many times, like, for example, I, I, I can say, I think his name, Victor Bruce. You know, dry, being behind, I've been in several lakes all over the U.S., being pulled behind him, and it, it becomes this competition to where, with the driver of the boat, he wants me to fall off. And I am determined, I will not fall off. If I fall off, I will not let go of the rope. And... You know, when I, have you ever been on a tube and the boat turns and you get thrown way, way, way out there? And it's almost like you're doing 200 miles per hour. It's like, oh my word. <laughs> and if you let go, what's going to happen to you? You're going to fly across that water. <laughs> it's like a stone. You'll be skipping for hundreds of yards. <laughs> and so there is this at least in me, whatever, Lord, whatever happens, maybe my arms will come off. I, I am not going to let go of this rope. I'm not going to let go of that handle. It, it, it's not going to happen. That's the kind of tenacity. This, If I let go, it's going to be really painful. Like if you've water skied, I've tried to water ski, and it's, it can hurt. The water can almost be like cement. That's the the picture here when it says, hold fast our confession. Whatever happens, I, I, I'm not going to let go. I'm not. You can use a, a, another illustration. If uh, With your kids when they were babies and you had them in, in your arms and, and you're carrying them, maybe through a crowded place, and if somebody, God forbid, but if something were to happen and somebody were, were to grab, I can guarantee you, a mom would never let go. If a mom had those, those babies and she's holding them on, or dad, you would never, ever, 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 ever let go. It wouldn't happen. You would say, I'm, you can pull off my arms, I'm, I'm not letting go. It, that's a, a fact. You, you wouldn't do it. No, you take off my arms. You're never ever going to get my kids. Ever. I'll die first. Gladly, I, I will die. That's the same kind of resolve and commitment that's here when it says, Lord, let us hold fast our confession. 
So then the question is then, do you and I cling to Jesus like this? Anybody, Satan, the world, friends, family, life itself can tempt me to let go of Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, I will never, never, ever, 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 ever let go of Jesus. Ever. I'll die before I let go of Jesus. Do we have this kind of grasping onto the Messiah with with all of our might? We're never going to give up Christ. Now, we don't want to be like Peter, who said, Everybody else may betray you, but I will never, ever leave you, Jesus. And he denied Christ. Three times. Well, we don't want to be like Peter in that episode that that he had. But are we able to keep our commitment to Jesus, not succumb to the temptation to drift away or leave Christ or Christianity because of sin or because of peer pressure from the world, because of persecution? As a believer, can you cling even more tenaciously to Jesus so, so, so that you don't fall? Yes, you can. You can. As a believer, remember 2 Timothy 1.7, God has given you a new kind of spirit so that you have a new kind of power, love, and self-control. Satan will say, no, you can't do it. And our response should be, uh, in one sense that's true. But in a different sense, in Christ, I'm more than able. I'm an, in Christ, I can conquer in a fantastic way. But the word here, God's word, is going to tell us, eventually it will tell us the why. That's by going to God in prayer. But first, it's going to give us a, a motivational grounds for this. We cling on with all of our might to Jesus Christ, no matter what happens. Why? Not in terms of uh, the means, but why in terms of how can this be true? Why should I do this? Why should I use all my strength? And this passage is going to tell us first, because Jesus is not like us. And then it's going to say, because Jesus is like us. The, the motivational grounds to never give up your faith in Christ is because Jesus is not like you and so that he is supreme and sufficient and perfect and person and power and his performance and he's able to keep you. As your intercessor and representative and, and mediator and redeemer, he is more than superior and supreme and sufficient. So he is not like you, but at the same time, he's like you. And he understands your weaknesses. And in a true sense, he was tempted more than you were tempted. But yet he never sinned. And he's able to come to your aid to help you. He doesn't run from you because you're weak or because you're tempted. He runs to you to help you. Say, you can hold on. So first, he is not like you. And you can see this here in the passage, in verse 14. And in fact, it's emphasized, the subject of verse 14 is what? It's us. The subject is is us. It's let us do this. All this that comes before, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... This basically, if you were writing it in a way, you could put it after, let us hold fast our confession. This is a whole participle, adverbial type of phrase that's placed in front of the verb to make it emphatic. It's almost as if the writer is raising his voice and, and speaking louder and saying, since you have a, 
mediator, a representative, an intercessor that is supreme and superior and perfect and victorious, because that is true, hold on. Because though you have failed, he has not failed and will not fail ever. Though you may fall, he never has fallen and never will. Now, several things. Look at verse 14. And it's note, he says, not just a high priest. But that is, again, a priest. And the, the rest, really from chapter 5 to about the middle of chapter 10, and we're talking about Jesus being the priest. A priest is somebody that would represent the people, intercede for the people, and even mediate for the people. And it says that here, Jesus is this priest, but he's not just the high priest, he's the great high priest. And of course, the Greek word for great is mega. He's the mega high priest. Better than Mechizedek, Aaron, better than any human priest, better than any pastor or pastors, better than any famous missionary, is Jesus Christ. And he's not just a high priest among high priests. He is the priest, the prophet, the king. He is the priest, the mediator, the representative, the intercessor. But keep looking at verse 14. Not only that, he's passed through the heavens. What does that mean? Not just, it's the idea, not just of the blue sky you see and not just the space you see, the outer space. It's He's gone through all those heavens and he's entered the heaven and he has sat down at the right hand of God, the Father on high. And it's a different way to explain, to mention Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, when it says, when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 14 is saying the same thing, but just a different way, with the idea who has passed through the heavens. It is saying that there is Jesus. He's the great high priest. He is the supreme and sufficient high priest. Why? He didn't go into the Holy of Holies and then come back out. He went as it were. He died on the cross, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and then he ascended through the clouds into the greatest holy of holies. And that's where he's at right now, at the Father's right hand side much greater than any high priest could ever do. He, in fact, he himself is, in a sense, the Holy of Holies. Not only that, in other words, it's saying he passed through the heavens. It's talking about that he is the victorious Messiah. He did what no other high priest could do. His work was so acceptable on the cross that he just didn't leave the tabernacle the, the Holy of Holies, the, the temple to come back in next year, he went into heaven and sat down and said, what? It is finished. It is finished. Then he rose again, ascended to heaven, and now sits down beside the Father. His work is done. Paid the price for all sin, for all those who trust him forever. But not just that. It says that Jesus, this is Jesus, which remember in chapter 3, verse 8, it talks about Joshua. And Joshua and Jesus, the same Greek word is used. Because <clears throat> it's the Hebrew word, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. And it's talking about that, that Jesus is truly Yahweh saves. God, Emmanuel. But it's also referring to Jesus as the earthly descendant of King David. It's talking about that all that is combined with this idea of Jesus, Yeshua. The, the Messiah, who, yes, is the great priest, but also is the king of kings. This historical Jesus, born to Mary and Joseph, the Messiah, who is Yeshua. But also, not only that, the Son of God. That is, he is God the Son. That chapter 1 has already explained in, in great detail 
using Old Testament verses that he's the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, of the whole world. It's similar, that is this phrase, the Son of God, and this passage of Hebrews is similar to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. In context of Hebrews 1 and 2, and now with chapter 4 of 14, saying Jesus and the Son of God, that's the idea. That is, the eternal Son took on humanity and that humanity to himself. And his mission, he performed it exactly and perfectly. So verse 14 is saying that the power, the person, the performance of, of Jesus Christ is supreme and superior to what anybody could ever do and was fully accepted by the Father. We don't have that power and that performance and the perfection that Jesus had. We're not like him, and he is not like us in that sense. And even verse 15 says, without sin. So there is this element of transcendence with our Messiah, with our Lord, with our Savior, with our Redeemer, Right, he's the yes, the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of God, and he's infinitely glorious, and in a true and real sense, altogether different. The angels can sing of him, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come." So, in a true sense, he is not like us. But because he's not like us, because he is perfect in his power and his person and his performance, he is able to successfully mediate, intercede, and represent us before God the Father. So that where we let go, where we fall, where we drift away, where we might deny the Word and the Father, Christ never did and never will and so all that he did, he did for us. That's why even in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. He is committed to bring his children, even his brothers and sisters who we are by faith, to glory. And we participate even in his glorification. This is all that verse 14 is seeking to summarize. And that he did this for us. So, going back to the introduction. I, I, many years ago, I was climbing. And I had to reach for this little outcrop out and ledge. And, and I lunged for it. And I grabbed it for, for a moment. But... I couldn't hang on. And I did fall. And for a split second, I thought, well, that was a short life, about 21 years. <laughs> I'm going to go to heaven, and the Lord's going to be really mad at me. You weren't martyred. You died because you were trying to climb a rock. That was silly. However, I was tied to a rope. And that rope went all the way up to the top and, like, into this pulley thing and all the way down to the bottom. And my roommate, David Nabnet had the rope down at the bottom. And as soon as he saw me not be able to hold on, he pulled the rope. And he caught me. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to come down. And he said, keep climbing. You can make it. Keep going up. I've got the rope. Keep going. Go higher. And by God's grace, I went higher. Not because I was a great climber. He and his uh, and that's other guy named Dave were really good climbers, not me. But the one that had the rope, he was stronger than me and more experienced than me. And that's like Jesus. He knows all that you've gone through better than you do. He's experienced it all, and his power, his understanding, his performance. He's got the rope, even if you fall. He has your back. 
And isn't that what, what we want? We want a, a best friend that even when I fall is not going to mock me and make fun of me and kick, and kick me and gloat on me, but actually that helps me. And that's Jesus Christ. And so don't, don't let go. Even if you do fall, Christ is there to cleanse you, to, to forgive you, and to help you get back up. And I think Psalm 63 has a, a great verse that really pictures this very well. Psalm 63, verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Isn't that great? Lord, I am committed to you. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to cleave to you. Because your right hand upholds me. And so we can say, Lord Jesus, no matter what, I resolve to even hold on to your, to you tighter. When life gets harder, when faith gets hard, when things look crazy, you know what? I'm gonna even hold on tighter then. Not because I have so much spiritual fortitude, but because I know you have me. I could only make it to the top of that cliff because I knew Dave had the rope. And that if I did fall, he would protect me. Even more so, Jesus Christ. Now, there is a sense here where the Spirit wants to be sure that we understand. It's not just because Jesus has this great power, because he's almighty, because he's perfect, because he never failed, because he's overcome everything. But there's also a sense in which the Spirit of God wants us to understand He can help me, He can help you, because in a true sense, He's He's like us. He's not like us, He's perfect, He's powerful, He never failed. But in another sense, in a very real sense, He is like us. And this is what we see in verse 15. And you can see in verse 15 with the word for, now it's going to give more grounds of this theological reasons why we can hold on. I can hold on because Jesus is not like me. He never failed. He climbed all the way up, made it to the top. He knows what it takes. He succeeded, and so he can help me. But not only that, is that he's like me because he's experienced weaknesses like me and even temptations like me. And therefore, he's super sympathetic. We could say that first, you know, we, we cling on to Jesus as strong with all the might that we have with this ferocious resolve because he's not like me. He's superior. But also because he is like me and he's able to be super sympathetic to me. And this is what the text says. And so there's two main points here then. Underneath, he is like you that we want to understand. And first is that he's super sympathetic to our weaknesses. You can see this in verse 15. And I love how it's written. For we don't have a high priest who is not unable, that's the word cannot, to sympathize with me. It's this double negative. Using a double negative is a way to say that he is incredibly able to sympathize with you. Jesus is super sympathetic to you. And especially if you look at verse 15, to our weaknesses. There are times I think, I can be tempted to think, the Lord, he doesn't understand the different weaknesses that I have. He's in heaven. He's the Lord. He's God. He can never truly understand what it's like to be human. This verse is saying, it's not just that he understands. It's not just that he has sorrow for you and seeking to help you. It's that he's super able to understand your weaknesses and he's super able to help you. That's what this text is saying. And it's underscoring it and highlighting it and making it emphatic. He's incredibly able to help you and has sorrow for what you're going through. The Lord is magnificent in his person, power, and perfection, 
but he's also magnificent in his sympathy to your weaknesses. So if you're climbing a cliff and you're trying to reach that, that ledge, you know, and I was so tired, you know, my muscles were almost gone. And it's not that the Lord is going to scream at you and say, you're just a weakling, you don't have what it takes. You're a cockroach. You're a worm. You disgust me. Get away from you. I've been pe- I, I'm done. That's not the Lord. That's not Jesus. Even with Peter, he told Peter, Peter, don't do this. Guard your heart. Satan is seeking to devour you. You've got to be really careful. And then after Peter fell, Jesus talked to him about it and restored him. Jesus didn't squash Peter but he was sympathetic to people, to Peter, and sought to help him. That's what this passage in verse 15 is saying. That is, the Lord is high and holy and lifted up, but that doesn't make him haughty. Jesus is holy and exalted and highly lifted up, but that doesn't make him haughty and compassionate-less. Because he is holy, because he is perfect, because he did succeed He has compassion for you, for me. And even this word here, where it says sympathize, it's the idea of not just having sorrow, not just grief, not just, I feel really bad. I feel bad for you. Christ, God, the Trinity in heaven, didn't look at our plight and say, I really feel bad for Tom. He's going to go to hell. That's just, that's sad. Well, let's keep going, angels. Is that what he did? That's not what he did. But God demonstrates his own love for us, while yet we were sinners. Christ died for us. God had sorrow, and that sorrow led to action, which led to sacrifice. This word here, sympathize, is not just pity, it's active pity. It's help. Like you, at times, have a person maybe pity you, but that pity is, in one sense, worthless if they do nothing about your situation. True sympathy, true pity will lead somebody to act, to relieve that situation. And that's what this word here is talking about. It's not just that Jesus feels bad for you. He feels bad, even as a Christian, that what you are doing could lead you to a very terrible place and bring ruin into your life. And he wants and will do something about it. That's even why in Hebrews 12, it talks about that when the father loves his children, when God loves his children like a father, what is he going to do? Verse 5, he's going to discipline you. Seeking to restore you to himself. Now, what kind of weaknesses is this talking about? Well, remember, even about uh, Jesus, it says in chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made made like his brethren in all things. And even in verse 14 of chapter 2, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. These weaknesses are weaknesses that Jesus himself experienced. Physical body problems. You know, being finite and fragile. Jesus, always God, always God the Son, put on a humanity that was finite and fragile. That's why when he didn't eat and drink, he would get weary and, and tired. But he lived in a world that was cursed. And in that sense, also, there were weaknesses, right? A, a political system that was corrupt and tyrannical. We think we might have it bad. <laughs> in one sense, it's bad. But it is nothing compared to having Rome occupy your, your country. And there is a political, social weakness that Jesus lived with. Even the idea of weakness in terms of his family life. 
They looked at him, Isaiah 53, his brothers, and didn't say, Behold, the Son of God! Demons would. But his brothers didn't recognize him immediately as being the Son of God. There is this creaturely, creatureliness, this humanness that Jesus had so much that he could walk down the street and people wouldn't be going, Behold, the Son of God! Only if it was a person that was demon-possessed, because demons could understand and see who he was. For these Hebrews, some were imprisoned, some had their possessions stolen, uh, people were placed in dungeons, uh, people could be lonely. Was Jesus ever lonely? He went out into lonely places to be by himself. Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever thought that God's forsaken you? Ever? Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't sin in that. But he was expressing a a feeling that he had. Have you had friends fail you? Have you had so much sorrows that, that you cried and cried? Isaiah 53, which we'll look at next week, says that Jesus, Jesus was acquainted with Greek, with grief. He was a man of what? Sorrows. So there was to Jesus, when he put on this flesh and blood, though not sinfulness, this human weakness and frailty that he had. He could be bruised, he could bleed, and he could die. And so he's able to understand any weaknesses that you have, and even as those weaknesses that lead to temptation, right? Many of the weaknesses that we encounter, they can lead to temptation. And Jesus experienced that. Jesus did not have a fallenness, and so he did not sin. His heart, his inner man, did not have remaining sin in him nor sin reigning over him and was not fallen. But there were weaknesses that would tempt Jesus. You can read Matthew 4 and see that that that's true. So any weaknesses that you have in terms of uh, your own body and and other people and the, the finiteness and the curse of this world, Jesus, God the Son, decided, it's not just that I feel a pity for them, I'm going to do something about it and do something for them, and I'm going to enter into their condition. So again, think of that picture. You're climbing, and you're trying to reach for that that, that next point, and you're so tired. I can't do it. I'm tired. And sometimes following Christ and following Christianity, you can be, I'm so tired. Jesus understands such weakness. Because he himself was in the same place. Now, when you look at the text, it says, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I I would suggest that you could even say, but further. But further. The reason why I say that is there's different conjunctions in Greek like kai would be k a i would be and this is day d e which is not a strong contrastive conjunction but is more of a development conjunction so it could be now or but but furthermore and so it's the idea is that Jesus only he understands and he can be sympathetic and help you not not only in your weaknesses, but furthermore, even in your temptations. That's the nuance that's made here. And know what it says. One who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. All things. And any, and any, and any, let's say, general categories of your temptation, Jesus has also been tempted in that way, yet never sinned. Now, what do I mean? 
Jesus was not tempted to spend too much time on a cell phone, right? That, that was not his temptation. So what we mean is Jesus, Jesus was tempted not to love God, his Father, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus was tempted not to love his neighbor as himself. If you want to expand on that, then you have the Ten Commandments. Jesus was tempted, not, not from evil in his heart, but it would be from the outside, to not follow the Ten Commandments. You can look at Matthew 4. Satan tempted Jesus to you know, be impatient, to presume upon God, to put himself first. He was tempted not to do the mission of the cross right in the garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if possible, remove this from me, but not, not my will, but let your will be done in sweated drops of blood. In those ways, Jesus was tempted. So, though it wouldn't be in the same exact way, Jesus wasn't tempted to overeat with chocolate, with dark chocolate raspberry cake, like I would be. But Satan tempted to turn a rock into bread. So, in those ways, Jesus was tempted, yet he was without sin. He didn't succumb to these temptations. Now, we know just several things here, and I'll try to do this briefly. We know that Jesus was tempted because it says it here, but also Matthew 401 and other Gospels say that Jesus was tempted. Temptation itself is not a sin. It's if instead of fighting that temptation, you follow that temptation, then that becomes sin. But Jesus fought it every time and overcame it. Scripture says also that he never sinned. You, you see it here, without sin. First Peter 2.22 says he never sinned. And as we said, these temptations that he had came from not his fallenness, he wasn't fallen, but it came from people that were close to him, like Peter. People that were not close to him, like Satan. Now, also, we can also say this. At times, there can be a temptation, I think, then to say, then can Jesus really understand? Because he was God. <laughs> he had the Almighty. He himself was God. And can this then really help me? This, this truth that he was tempted because, okay, I understand that, but he was God. So what? And it says in James, God can't be tempted by evil. So, yes, that is true, but it's true that Jesus, as we saw in Hebrews 2, though not giving up his deity, he added to himself flesh and blood. And when he was incarnated, it was the, his normal practice not to trust in his own deity, but trust in God the Father. And I say this because it says in Hebrews 2.13, and again, I will put my trust in him. That is, Jesus was trusting the Father. And that's even why when he's tempted by Satan, who does he quote? He quotes God's word. It is written. It is written. It is written. So what I'm saying that the Bible says is that he was sinless. And part of his sinlessness was that he overcame temptation by relying upon the Father and the word of the Father. So that he could be that victorious intercessor, mediator, and be able to truly sympathize with us. Now, further, there are some that have said, yes, but since he wasn't fallen, it's not just that he wasn't God, because he wasn't fallen, then he can't understand me. Okay, I can understand he's God, but he didn't trust in his own deity to get himself out of temptation, but normally he would trust the Spirit of God and God the Father and God's Word to overcome those temptations, but he wasn't fallen himself. 
right? Christ didn't have a fallen heart. So can he really understand my temptation? Truly? Well, if think about it this way. <clears throat> Would you want Jesus to be fallen? If Jesus was fallen, he can't be your savior. So we shouldn't go that direction. But the fact is, is that Jesus, though he wasn't fallen, it doesn't mean, and though he never sinned, it doesn't mean that he's never felt a overwhelming burden of sin. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us. He didn't become a sinner, but all of our sin was placed upon him. And Isaiah 53 talks about that he was crushed by our iniquities. So though, praise God, he was not fallen, he was crushed by your fallenness. He understands, in a sense then, the the weight and the burden of a sinful condition more than you and I do. Because of all of the billions that would trust him, he bore their sin. Third, just in terms of, of thinking about, can he really truly understand? He never, ever once gave in to temptation so as to sin. Not even once. And you know what it's like when you're tempted. There are some sins, some sins, some temptation you say no to, and then it comes even harder. And then you say no, and it comes even more forceful. And you say no, and you say no, no, and then it can just be like this tsunami wave. And then you say, "Okay, if I just do this sin, then I'll have some relief." And there is some relief. That temptation goes away for a time. But Jesus never said yes to the temptation and sin. He always said no. And listen to this quote then by Bruce and Westcott. Quote, Sympathy with the sinner does not depend upon the experience of the sin, but on the experience of the strength of temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. Again, Jesus being able to sympathize with us and understand and help us doesn't depend upon his experience of the sin, but on the experience of the strength of temptation to sin. Jesus experienced the force of temptation more than you and I could ever, ever possibly imagine. And he always said, no to sin, but yes to, to God, the Father. Do you ever feel like just giving up? Saying, I'm done with Christ, I'm done with Christianity. Have you given up? Satan and sin want you to. But the truth is, if you're falling, even now, drifting away, and you're in Christ, the Lord has the power to forgive you and to help you and to restore you. He's for you and he wants to. And he will cleanse you and help you and pick you up when you fall. If you were not on a cliff but in a building and you had to hold on with your hands and traverse across a pipe, from one side of the room to the other side of the room. And the bottom was just engulfed in flames. Would you get like a halfway and just say, oh, this is too tiring. I'm just going to let go. I know you would never, ever, ever, ever do that. You'd probably try to put even your legs around that pipe, (laughs) your whole body around the pipe. That is, I think that this passage what the Spirit of God is saying to these people is this. If you have a personal weakness, a personal disease that is hurting you in some way, 
there can be a temptation of, God, why would you do this to me? I'm just going to give up. This passage is saying, if you have a personal disease that's inflicting you, you know what? Satan is saying, let go of Christ. Your response should be, I have this personal problem. I'm going to even hold on tighter. There can be a temptation if a a, a beloved person, a person that you love, dies and passes away. There can be a temptation. Lord, how could you do this? You know what? If that happens, and it will happen, hold on even tighter to Jesus. Hold on even even tighter to him. Have you been treated unfairly and and betrayed and and lied about? There can be a temptation of when that happens. Lord, why would you do this? You're sovereign over all things. I'm being betrayed. I was lied about. I was slandered. You know what? Satan wants you to let go. You know what you should do is resolve. I'm going to hold on even tighter to Jesus. Satan wants you to let go. But Jesus is for you. He's with you. And Jesus has your back. And he has all of you. That's why it says in Micah, at the, chapter 7, Though I fall, I will arise Don't rejoice in me, O my enemy. The Lord is a light for me. So then, Pilgrim Bible Church, no matter what, since Jesus Christ is your divine, sympathetic representative, hold on to Jesus no matter what happens and shout hallelujah. To to sum up, this sermon would be, hold on to Jesus and no matter what happens, hallelujah! Because the Lord is with you, he loves you, he understands your weaknesses and your temptation better than you do. He doesn't reject you. He's for you. Hang on. Help is on the way in Jesus. Lord, thank you for this passage. May you take these feeble words of mine and use it, Lord, to bring your word through them, uh, clarity and help for all of us not to get too discouraged, but to be encouraged that you have us and that you're for us and you will always be there to help us, Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.